Welcome back, everybody, to the Two Tongues Podcast. It's Chris coming at you solo today. Um, Kyle and I decided uh, we were going to also kind of put a few of these solo podcasts in um, on some of those topics that we want to talk about, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, in monologue form. Um, One of the things I wanted to do was uh, talk about religion, because, again, that's something that people don't often want to talk about. you know, there's a lot of resistance to that, even w- among your friends and family. Um, you know, anybody ever had that conversation, uh, you know, at Thanksgiving or Christmas with the family, you kind of understand what I mean. Very much like talking politics, it's not something that, uh, you know, it's not something that uh, folks like to do. I, on the other hand, love it. So um, this is something that's been an interest of mine really as far back as I can remember. So I wanted to talk a little bit about why that is, uh, so that when I talk about religion going forward, you guys have some idea of kind of where I'm coming from. So it's definitely been something that, um, you know, and when I explain it, I think, you you know, many of you will agree. Um, it kind of starts with um, a time at a very young age when, um, you know, when we have to ask ourselves, when we first kind of get in, encountering the question, um, where did all this come from? Where did I come from? You know, where did life come from? So, you know, as I thought about that uh, over, you know, the many years of my life so far, I sort of, um, you know, uh, the, the, I fleshed out that, that um, uh, thought and theory um, until I came up with something that I, that I could believe, you know, something that I could, uh, I could get behind. And it wasn't, it wasn't always in line with the religion that I kind of grew up with. And like probably most of the people listening to this podcast, you know, I grew up in a, in a traditional Western Christian household, not particularly religious or anything. Um, you know, I did, I went to Sunday school when I was young and then I stopped going as I got a little older and like many people didn't have a lot of interest in church. Um, you know, when I was, uh, uh, growing up, um, a little, you know, and, um, I went with Kyle growing up a bit, um, but it wasn't something consistent, um, and beyond, you know, like Sunday school, it wasn't something as an adult that I did or really enjoyed, you know, I never really got behind, um, you know, singing hymns and, um, you know, and if Kyle were here, he'd have a lot of other critical things to say about organized religion in general, but it was nothing really about it that spoke to me. Um, so I just studied on my own, you know, the things that interested me and where it started was again with what I, what I now call the phenomenon of existence and the phenomenon of life. Just recognizing that there's something, uh, when there could be nothing and, and recognizing that, you know, there are things that are alive and there are things that are not. And, uh, why is it that there are things that are alive at all? You know, why is it that, you know, the cosmos is here at all? So these are questions that, you know, again, many of you had at some point in your life and it's, you know, a mystery and it's fascinating. And many people say that, you know, Hey, there's really no answers to that question. So I'm not really going to bother with it anymore. And they don't think about it. Um, that was not me. I have not really been able to, to not be fascinated by it and to not think about it. It's sort of been, um, I wouldn't call it an obsession, but it's kind of that deep interest that I have. Um, and I've learned that early in life. So it's been something I've sort of been carrying with me since I was, you know, maybe five years old. Um, so really it's just a question of origins, kind of where things come from. Um, you know, this conversation a lot of times circles around, um, you know, evolution. So you've got people that are on the religious side of the argument who don't want to buy into that. 
uh, for whatever reason, and and people on the scientific side that don't want to allow for any any um, mystery. You know, everything can be explained by by matter and science, and um, and so there's just this great divide between those two groups, and and I'm just firmly right in the middle, and always have been. And there's a there's a concept that shows up in a way back in in um, you know Western um, culture, kind of way back to Aristotle and ancient Greece where he, he uses a phrase, um, the unmoved mover. You know, what he means by that is the uncreated creator, the thing that pre-exists all of this. Um, that's where the buck stops. So you can say something like, you know, where did I come from? You know, I came from my parents. Where did my parents come from? They came from my grandparents. You know, where did my grandparents come from? They came from my great-grandparents. And you can continue to go on and on and on. And eventually you're going to hit a wall, and that wall is what Aristotle calls uh, the unmoved mover. And I think that's kind of always been what I've been searching for. Uh, what is that? What is that? You know. And uh, I remember, you know, maybe maybe around middle school age, um, being introduced to people. And it was in school, you know, people I was going to school with every day, um, and realizing that not all of them believed the same thing that I did. So I remember, uh, you know, meeting my first um, Jewish friend, my first uh, Muslim friend. There was a, a, a boy and a girl in my in my uh, middle school and high school um, from uh, from Pakistan. So, um, you know, then I then I had a, a girl who was a Mormon, and so, you know, I would always be really interested to have those conversations and want to talk to those people and ask questions. And most of them were really, you know, open to that and eager to to talk and, and they could see that I was really curious about it. So, um, so I, I learned as much as I possibly could that way. And when I, um, and it, you know, that moment is really a baffling moment. And you may remember when that happened to you as a kid, uh, you're young, you're sort of naive and you think that things are, um, the way that your parents, you know, and your society at large told you they are. And then you meet somebody who doesn't hold those same beliefs, you know. Again, what I'm referring to here is kind of growing up my whole life, hearing things like, um, you know, uh, Jesus is God, and uh, you need to to have, you know, salvation that, that is being offered in, in the Christian faith so that you can go to heaven, you know, that sort of thing. And then I meet somebody who says um, they don't believe in Jesus or that they don't believe Jesus ever existed. Um or somebody else, again, I'm talking here about my, uh, my Muslim friend who, who agreed, you know, that Jesus was a historical character and an important religious figure, but doesn't believe that he's God. And, uh, you know, when the first time you hear that, it's absolutely shattering to your worldview. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So all this, all this supernatural stuff that, that I've learned that that's, you know, beyond reproach that, that I'm reading in the holy book that, uh, you know, came to us from right from God himself, you know, that sort of thing. And you're telling me there's people that don't believe that. In fact, they believe other things entirely and they have their own holy books. Okay, so God's giving messages to different people in different languages and the messages are different all around. Um, what what a shattering moment that is. Um, and for me, it was probably around middle school age, actually. Um, but it wasn't... You know, when I say it was shattering, um, you know, it's shattering as far as the tradition goes and kind of like the basis for all, everything I thought I, I held true and thought was sacred. But it was also for me not not 
um, a depressing thing. It was a fascinating thing. So it was shattering for sure, but I was so, so eager to to build that foundation back up and to kind of fi- piece out the truth, find the truth for myself that I really wanted to, I wanted to explore that. And that's sort of been, you know, my greatest passion, um, you know, beyond my friends and family, uh, my entire life. Um, so I want to talk about some of the things that tested my faith. Um, and when I say that, guys, I'm not, I'm not talking here about a Christian faith um, specifically. You know, that's what I was raised in. Uh, my ideas have changed a lot over the years, and I'll talk about it, you know, at length. Um, but uh, but I, when I say test my faith, uh, what I'm talking about here is uh, that things that tested what I believed to be true about the idea of God, about spirituality, about, you know, any kind of sort of supernatural existence that might really exist behind the scenes somehow. Um, and and learning that there were other faiths was definitely one of them. Um, but when I got when I got into probably... Uh, sophomore year of high school, I started researching this stuff. Um, you know, th- guys, this was the time when we, this was one of the earliest times when we had computer labs in, in school. So this is like, you know, commonplace obviously today. And, and, you know, computer lab, even that idea is probably a little bit dated because folks nowadays, I mean, even elementary school kids have, you know, Chromebooks that they take with them and all that. So, um, so I'm going back here, uh, a ways, but um, where I had access to, um, at school, uh, a nice computer lab, and I could get on the internet, and that was something at the time that not everybody had in their, in their homes. You know, if you wanted to get on the internet, you, you had to find a rich friend who had a computer, or you had to go to the library. Um, so in any case, uh, I had access to the internet. You know, I'm, I'm deep diving in on this stuff, researching everything that I can, and I started, I started piecing things um, together that that really blew my mind and you guys may know some of this already but I'm going to I'm going to walk through some of these with you so you kind of get the get the picture so so I I learned um early on that these flood stories you know these the great flood you know like that we that we have in the in the bible in the story of Noah that those stories exist all over the world um and there's examples of them all across time so it's not like uh, I mean they they're ancient stories all over the place, um, you know, as far away as uh, China, um, India, ancient Greece, in the Americas, the the story that the Hopi Indians from New Mexico tell is absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, these stories are really all very similar. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you real quickly since I mentioned it. The Hopi story is is really neat, guys. It's um, uh, they kind of go something like this. Um, so something happens. Uh, God is upset with. Um, with people, he decides to destroy the the world. So this is very similar to what we see in the in the Noah story, um, and and the uh, Hopi Indians are um, given a warning. Uh, God gives them a chance to kind of save themselves, and so he seals them up in these reeds. And the reeds, when the world floods, the reeds sort of float on top of the of the flood, and then they come to rest. Um, oh, after the flood kind of pulls back. They find themselves on an island, and in this story, um, they actually some of the people stay on the island. Uh, the rest of the people say, you know, uh, that God, and, and I say that loosely. They're talking about their their Creator God, um, whose name and the pr- pronunciation of which I'm not gonna, even going to attempt right now. Uh, you know, I don't don't speak Hopi, unfortunately. Um, 
But anyway, some of these people stay, and it's kind of like against the will of God that they stay. The rest of them get back in the reeds, and the flood comes back. And here they go again. They're floating off in the ocean, and they find themselves in another island. They come out, same, same thing happens. So here they're basically island hopping, island hopping, until they find themselves you know, at the, the promised land, for, for lack of a better word, where their creator God said that was at their, de- their final destination. So they get out of the reeds there, um, you know, and then uh, they find a place to settle. Um, They're supposed to do this um, circumnavigation thing where they go to the very, very north part of the land. They go to the very south part, the very east and the west part before they're able to find the place where they can settle. So they kind of map out the territory. And you have to imagine if you try to put like a historical lens on this, that what these people are talking about doing is island hopping from the old world to the new world. So they find themselves, you know, landed in the Americas, you know, according to this myth, um, they, they map it out. They travel around, uh, the entire, the entire continent to figure out what's, what's what and where they need to go. And then they end up settling in New Mexico, uh, where they, where they still live today and they have their, um, you know, their capital. And an interesting story that's related to this is that some of the dances that they do, um, are really close, um, and similar to dances that the uh, the Aztec people in Mexico did. Um, I can't remember if it's the snake dance or something like that, but there's a particular dance that they do in, in New Mexico and also, um, you know, as far as far south as kind of Central America. And they're separated by, you know, different cultures. So um, uh, the story that the Hopi tell is that the Aztec people were, were there, were the Hopi when they landed in the new world and that they went uh, on this uh, migration, you know, all the way to the north part of Canada, all the way to the south part of South America and so forth. And that they um, decided not to complete the journey, that they kind of got tired or, you know, they, they were done doing their migration. So they just settled a little bit shy of where their promised land was. So the Aztecs settled in Mexico and that area and the uh, Hopi continued on and settled in uh, in New Mexico. So they kind of tell the story like the Aztecs were like their brothers or cousins that didn't quite make it all the way. And and, and that's how they separate themselves from, from them. But an interesting connection. And these stories are really similar. Um, you know, the uh, the one that I want to point out now, I first encountered, like I, like I said, in, in kind of high school. Um, and it's the story of, of Gilgamesh. And some of you may know that story already. You know, there's a version of it that comes from uh, the Babylonians and a version that comes from the Assyrians. And uh, both of these people are ancient people in the Middle East um, whose empires predated, um, you know, the Jewish, the Jewish stories and the Jewish, the Jewish people, for that matter, um, by a thousand plus years. And in the story of, of Gilgamesh, there's a creation story. So it's very similar to what you read in Genesis about in the beginning, that sort of thing. And it continues all the way on through uh, the gods um, being upset with uh, humanity, deciding to kind of clean the slate and kill him off, um, finding that one noble guy, in this case Gilgamesh, um, who um, was kind of the Noah. He was the guy that, that was going to be, um, be preserved and be able to uh, keep humanity going. Um, the flood, the building of the ark, the, the releasing of the birds uh, to see if the floodwaters have receded. Every one of those details that I read to you just now that we all recognize from, from you know, the Noah story in Genesis 
all of those details come from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, again, over a thousand years older than the oral tradition of the Jewish story, though that level of detail is mirrored exactly. So we're not talking here about similar stories. We're talking here about very clearly identical stories, uh, either um, the stories older than the Babylonians and the Jews' uh, stories, and they're kind of um, trickling down to us in those both both of those areas, or or the Jews borrowed borrowed the story from the Babylonians. You know, we all uh, maybe remember from uh, you know from uh, from history that the Babylonians um, came and took took over um, um, Israel. They burned down the temple. They took the the Jewish people as slaves and took them back to Babylon. So there's a connection there. But it goes so much farther than that. Um, you see the same stories in India and in China, um, all over the place. So this was something that that really blew my mind. This the flood story that I thought was somehow unique, uh, critical to the the story of uh, the you know uh, Judeo Christian sort of ethic um, and culture. And here it is popping up in a much older form somewhere else. And now I, I, suddenly this is testing me, right? So suddenly I'm, I'm forced uh, into this situation where I'm asking myself, um, well, what does that mean? Does that mean the story's not important? Does it mean it's not sacred? Does it mean it's not from God? Um, the way that I was sort of brought up to believe, you know, as a, as a, young, as a young child? Um, or does it mean something else? So, you know, it was, it, was, it was disappointing in some ways, but very, very interesting in other ways. And it just keeps going. Um, that, that Assyrian version, uh, by the way, it does not talk about uh, Gilgamesh, but Athrasis, and if I'm probably mispronouncing that name, but, um, but you could look those up, either of those stories. Um, the next point that I thought was similar is the story about the Tower of Babel uh, in the Bible. Now, it's an interesting story, and you know, if you're a Christian or a Jew, you, you know the story well, um, you know, the, the very, very early on, very shortly after people left the Garden of Eden, you know, really early in human history, um, people decide to build this giant tower. Uh, one, one version of the story says that um, they were trying to reach heaven and that God uh, decided that sort of mankind was too big for his britches trying to trying to do this thing, this, this thing that's greater than mankind is. And as a punishment, God... Um, uh, confused all of our languages so that pe- at the time people all understood each other and they could collaborate and do great things like that. And he was like, nope, no, I'm not having that. So we're just going to make you all speak different languages so you can no longer cooperate with each other. So this is the story. Um, but here's the interesting thing. That tower, the way it's described and where it comes from in the Middle East, you know, that, that idea, um, it's, it's not a fictional thing. It, it is absolutely a real thing. You can go and you can see it today with your own eyes. You can touch it with your own hands. Um, these temples exist all over Iraq and Iran. They're called ziggurats. They go back to ancient to ancient Babylon primarily, and um, they look a lot like um, the temples that you see from the the um, from Mesoamerica, from the from the Mayans and the Aztecs. They got this, you know, sort of pyramid-like sides. They got very steep steps that go up. And at the very top, there's a temple. Um, so this is a Tower of Babel that's described. Um, most um, scientists, most archaeologists will tell you that the ziggurat of Ur, and this is a city in, in Iraq, an ancient city, obviously doesn't exist anymore, it's ruins, but that, that that was very likely the building 
that the story of the Tower of Babel is based on. So that's sort of mind blowing, you know. That's then suddenly that's no longer just a story. It's no longer just a like an Aesop fable that I'm reading. It's suddenly it's a real thing. Not only that, it's not a Jewish building, right? It, it, this is something we learned about from, you know, that I learned about from the Old Testament, and it's not related at all to the Old Testament. It's a building that belonged to the Babylonian people, and they had a different religion and a different culture and a different language. So this is another thing that I'm confronted with, and I'm like, well, how how do I make sense of that? You know, what I mean, am I meant to, am I meant to find like the, the true religion somewhere in Babylon? Is it, you know, are these stories that I'm seeing from, uh, from the Jewish part of of the biblical tradition really just based on older traditions? Am I am I if I want to find the truth, am I going to have to, you know, become a a pagan, you know, Babylonian sort of sort of worshiper or something like what kind of what kind of what kind of thing is this and it just keeps going um there are tablets um that they found these clay tablets uh all over the place in, in babylon um and that, that whole babylonian empire um some of the oldest writing in the world you know you may have seen that's that that cuneiform writing it looks like little wedges that are just sort of um uh, punched into these these clay tablets while they're while they're moist and then they dry hard um it's very strange looking writing you can look it up it's really neat um but they have these these tablets that they found that are called uh the babylonian king's list uh or the antediluvian king's list um that antediluvian word that just means before the flood um and so that kind of leads me into it so here they they found these ancient ancient clay tablets that list the kings that ruled uh, the the empire, Babylonian Empire, going back tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. So these these are people that lived, um, you know, according to the kings list, they lived and ruled a very very long time. But I think there's twelve names on the list. And then what I learned very shortly was that these twelve names they correspond to Jewish names and stories. So you got these Babylonian kings lists, this, this literally a list of the kings that ruled, and each one of them corresponds to one of the patriarchs of Judaism. So it's starting with Adam, going all the way to Noah. Now, obviously those names aren't, you're not going to see those names on the kings list, they're Babylonian names, but that they correspond to these patriarchs, these leaders um, of, of kind of the Jewish people, and uh, you know the important characters in the biblical tradition. So, so here we just keep stacking this on, on top of each other, and we get to a really interesting p- part of the story, which is um, a king in Babylon called Sargon the Great. Um, Sargon of Akkad, Sargon the Great. Um, and, and he was. Yeah, he was a great, a great leader, a great historical figure. And um, um, in fact, uh, you guys may know that um, um, Saddam Hussein... Uh, he sort of projected himself like he was a he was the successor of Sargon, so he even had his face on a coin um, with Sargon's face on the back, and he really thought thought of himself like he was the successor of this other this last great Babylonian ruler. It's just an interesting tidbit. But anyway, the story of Sargon is when he was a baby, um, he was to be killed, and in order to save him, his mother puts him in a basket and lays him on the Tigris River and lets him go, knowing full well that he may die, he may drown, he may get eaten by whatever. But 
if he if she didn't take that risk, he was going to die for sure. So she puts him in the in the basket. She puts him on the Tigris River. She lets him float away. And as it happens, he gets picked up by um, a princess, raised in the in the royal family. Is it starting to sound familiar to you? Do you know where I'm going with this? So the story of Sargon is exactly down to the detail, the story of Moses that we that we hear from the Bible. The baby is going to die. Uh, the Pharaoh wants wants uh, you know the 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 children to be killed. The mother decides uh, to save Mo- baby Moses, puts him in a basket, a reed basket, let, puts him in the Nile, lets him go down the Nile, knowing full well he might die, but this is her only chance to save her baby. Um, baby Moses gets picked up by the princess the, the in the Pharaoh's household, gets raised among uh, the royalty there, and we all know that how that story winds up. Now, what I want to point out here is that Sargon lived... Right around 2200 BC, something like that. The story of Moses, if you, you know, according to the kind of biblical scholars, they say that that's some, somewhere between you know 1400 and maybe 1200 BC. So we're talking about a, a difference of over you know a thousand years, let's say, between Sargon and Moses, and we're expected to believe that somehow these same details are appearing independently in these two separate people's lives. And that they're both great kings from that part of the world, uh, great rulers, I should say. I mean, that's beyond coincidence. There's no way. So, so again, this, they're just stacking on top of each other. We've got the story of uh, the creation. We have the story of the flood. We have the biblical patriarchs. We have the story of Moses. All of these critical stories from the Jewish tradition that I learned growing up, um, they're, they're all borrowed, seemingly, from other... Uh, older traditions, um, and this one, you know, I don't want to beat this one, too, uh, you know, t- too much because it's there's been lots of documentaries and lots of people have talked about it already. Um, but the, the story of a, of a, of Jesus, I mean, the story of a uh, a resurrected Savior that that's something that we see going all the way back to ancient Egypt with uh, with the story of Osiris. So we're talking many many thousands of years uh, before Jesus, certainly. Uh, older even than than the um, uh, than the Old Testament uh, traditions, um, you know. So that that that's not unique either. Um, so again, uh, you know, there's a lot already said about that. I won't harp on it. Um, but but even and so this kind of brings me into college. So I'm so I'm starting college at this point. You know, it's been a couple years later. Uh, one of the first classes I take um, is a comparative religion class because clearly you know this is something I'm super interested in I wanted uh, I wanted to dive right into that so so I took that as an elective um, really liked that class and the, and the professor I had there but this I was introduced there to two ideas that completely blew my mind that are going to stack on to what I've already said the first one is um, I learned about a religion from um, ancient Iran called uh, Zoroastrianism um, sometimes you'll he'll see it called Mazdaism, and if that name sounds familiar to you, yes, it, that, that name is borrowed uh, by the car manufacturer, so the, the, the god of that religion was called uh, Hora Mazda, which meant wise lord, and that is, by the way, where the, the, the word Mazda, the car, gets its name. Um, so, so this is the interesting thing, is that Hora Mazda, the god of this Zoroastrian religion, um, Zoroaster, by the way, is the kind of the Greek pronunciation of the prophet of that of that religion. 
Um, uh, so, so they believed in um, God, kind of like, kind of like a good God and a bad God. For you know, and again, it's not fair to put it that way exactly. But Ahura Mazda is the God of good. Um, Arhiman is the God of evil. And when you read that stuff, um, it becomes very familiar very quickly because it starts to very quickly sound like God and the devil, God and Lucifer. It's a very similar dynamic. You've got this supernatural creature who's all good um, and, you know, looking out for mankind and, you know, beneficent and all that. And then you have uh, uh, another God who represents the opposite, um, who wants bad things for mankind, who's evil, um, you know, who's, who's the destructive force and not the creative force, that sort of thing. And, and their religion includes an idea of an afterlife that is heaven and hell. Um, I point that out because that didn't exist in Judaism. Um, in fact, it was borrowed by the Jews from the Zoroastrians. So these are the first people that we know of in history that said there was a heaven and a hell, a place where the good people go when they die and a place where the bad people go. Not only that, but they were the first people, uh, they were the first people to say that there would be an end of days. They're the very first people to ever have a, an Armageddon. And the idea was that the, the forces of good uh, led by uh, Horamazda and the forces of bad, led by Ahriman, would come to a head and that the world would be destroyed and reborn. Um, very, very much like what we see in our own, um, you know, Western tradition from the book of Revelation and that sort of thing. Obviously, this predates that by a long shot. Um, so this is Zoroastrianism. Not only was it the place where all those ideas originated, um, kind of a good God versus bad God dynamic, which we absolutely have in the Judeo-Christian uh, um, tradition. Even if you don't believe that, you're, you know, I would disagree with you. Uh, we've got, you know, the um, we've got the, uh, the the heaven and hell, the end of days, and the good and the bad God scenario, all coming from Zoroastrianism and being borrowed by uh, the Jewish people and trickling down to the Christian tradition. I could not believe that. Um, it completely blew my mind. Like heaven and hell, like the the whole thing that we sort of base our moral, uh, our our, our moral um, ethic uh, on, you know, is that what we tell our small children to keep them in line? That that you know, there's consequences for bad behavior, even if you get away with it. That that comes not from the Jewish or Christian traditions, but from some other kind of unrelated tradition. Um, you know, it's not even a monotheistic religion, technically. It's a religion that has two gods and a whole bunch of other spirits. So it's just a very interesting thing, and, and this just all piles on. And it kind of leads me down to maybe the last point, which is in that same class, um, we did a little bit of a dive on ancient Egyptian religion, and I learned about a character who I'd never heard of, um, a pharaoh named Akhenaten. So if anybody knows that name, you know where I'm going with this. Um, Akhenaten was a very interesting character. He's a, he's a character that lived um, right around uh, 1300 B.C., so not that far different from kind of when Moses was, was supposed to have lived. Um, and Akhenaten was a monotheist. He was, a, he, was, he was an Egyptian pharaoh. When he came to power, he changed his name um, and, 
and moved the capital of the Egyptian empire to a whole new city that he had built, and he closed down all the temples. Let me say that again. He closed down all the temples. So this is a culture that had, you know, large-ish cities, um, a, couple of, a couple of them in particular, spread out across northern and southern Egypt, uh, united as an empire, had been around for a very, very long time. They had, you know, of course, Amun, uh, Ra, Osiris, Isis, Anubis, all these various gods that the people worshipped. And they had a priestly class. They had a priestly class of very powerful people who maintained those temples. People brought, you know, money and sacrifices to the temples. And that was all wealth for the priests. They were very, very powerful. Um, Together, the priesthood may have been more powerful than the pharaoh. Okay. Here this young pharaoh comes and he just says, uh-uh, nobody's worshiping Ra anymore. Closes all the temples, pisses a lot of people off. Now there's not really any way of telling whether the, the people cared one way or the other, whether the people themselves thought this was a catastrophe. But the priests thought it was a catastrophe, as you can imagine. Their livelihood was gone. So you have this you have this pharaoh who comes up, who lives right around the same time in Egypt, right around the same time Moses was supposed to have lived. You know, Moses, the great, the great monotheist, the, the, the first person in, in a Western tradition who said, there aren't many gods, there's only one. Um, turns out that's not the case. It was Akhenaten. It was this, it was this Egyptian pharaoh. Um, and there are theories and people who say that maybe they were the same, Moses and Akhenaten. Um, maybe Moses was influenced by Akhenaten, that sort of thing. Or maybe the other way around which is also interesting. So you just stack all these things together. You know, the, the origins of heaven and hell and monotheism aren't Judeo-Christian. The stories in the Old Testament are not Judeo-Christian. Um, so here I am, you know, completely intrigued, absolutely fascinated by all this. But here the rug has been pulled directly out from under my kind of upbringing. And like I said, I'm, I wasn't a particularly religious person um, but, you know, it was very interested in this stuff. So it, it wasn't earth-shattering for me to the extent that I couldn't recover, but I just wanted to learn more. So, so I did end up with a rejuvenated interest in religion, and uh, I'll talk about this a lot, and, and I really want to um, in future solo podcasts. Um, kind of, And where this, where this comes from really is um, learning all this stuff, you know, growing up um, at an impressionable age and all that, um, I decided that what I needed to do if I was going to find the truth was to find the oldest stories, find the oldest religion. What, where did the idea of God come from? How far back can we go and get the earliest version? Because to me, that was going to be the most true. That was going to be um, if there was you know, a revelation, let's say, from God to man, I wanted to get as close to that source as possible. Because I'm imagining like, you know, somebody whispering this, the, the mysteries of the world into the ear of somebody next to them, and they do that to the person next to them. And on and on and on that goes um, across the ages, across time. And by the time you get the story, the Judeo-Christian story, there's so many changes um, that you just wonder how much truth is there. Uh, what do you have to whittle through to get to the nuggets of truth 
that's what I wanted. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't convinced um, in, of, of anything. I just wanted to find that. So I went on this, I went on this search uh, for the origins of the idea of God, for the origins of kind of human spirituality. And um, I came across a, a, a guy, he was a, actually a Catholic uh, priest. His name was Wilhelm Schmidt, a German priest. But really, he was an anthropologist. Um, you know, he was one of the early anthropologists. Um, you know, and again, because he was a Catholic priest, nobody really takes his scholarship seriously because they just assume he was tainted by that and everything he said was just trying to defend his beliefs that, you know, God existed and that there was only one God and that it was the Catholic God. Um, but what he did was he wrote a bunch of books that talked about really primitive people, uh, even tribes that exist today uh, that live really primitively, um, and then going back to um, kind of the what he called the ethnologically oldest groups of people. And he, and he derived that somehow by their language, by their, the, the, their way of life. And he identified people in um, places like um, Central California, the Indian, some Indian tribes there, um, some tribes that live on an island in South America called Tierra La Fuego, and some other places, that, that these people represented the, the, the oldest types of culture, and that their religion was the oldest form of religion. And these people, um, they didn't all worship one God. Some of them, some of them did. Um, but the ones that, but they all had a high God. And this is what Wilhelm Schmidt grabbed a hold of. He's like, all of these people, um, even though they believe that there might be other like spirits and other gods that exist in certain ways, there really is only one head honcho. There's one God, one God to rule them all. And this was the, the creator God. Um, so, so he wrote, uh, wrote this book about these high gods, and he basically made the point that everywhere you see these stories of high gods, there is an um, origin there in some kind of a monotheism, some kind of idea that, that God is one or that there's only one God. Um, and that idea really is what I took and ran with. Um, and I'm still exploring that um, every day. Um, but, but I want to tell you one other story because it, it really, really fascinated me, and it kind of leads into this. Um, so going, going to kind of a couple years uh, later, a couple years down the road, um, I started getting into um, languages because I wanted to learn um, kind of the origins of words and, and uh, kind of what they meant and, and where they came from and the history behind them, um, on all connected to this, uh, this stuff. So I'm reading about um, the Indo-European people, or the Proto-Indo-European people. And if you ever see that written, it's a, it's a mouthful. So they'll usually say Pi, P-I-E, instead of Proto-Indo-European. And you can see why. Um, but anyway, these, these people were supposed to have come down from uh, the steppes maybe of Russia or Central Europe. They came down into the Mediterranean and into India and into Iran, into Persia. And those people kind of mixed with the other tribes that were there, um, and they left their mark. One of the biggest was um, their religion and their language. So Proto-Indo-European has root words um, in English, and so they're, they're, you know, it comes all the way down to us today. And here's, here's what really, here's, I'm just going to jump, I'm going to skip to the chase and jump right to it. Here's what I learned. Um, the Proto-Indo-European people had a high god. They believed that there was um, maybe just one God, um, but, but, but more realistically, probably one God that was sort of the ruler of them all um, and represented kind of the religion. 
Um, and it was a sky god because the people who lived in the steppe, the people who lived in southern Russia and the people who lived in, you know, the, uh, the Kazakhstan and Mongolia and those places, um, that's big sky country. You know, that's like Montana. You go out there and it's just sky. Um, they they worshipped the, their high god as the sky. He was a sky god. And what they called him was Dias Pater, which means sky father. And here's where this goes. That people, um, and they're often called they're often often called Aryans, and that that may be what what they called themselves. Um, Aryans. The, that word means noble. The word Iran, that obviously we use today, comes from that word Aryan. Um, interestingly, uh, the word Ireland comes from the word Aryan. So the people, uh, these Proto-Indo-European people. Um, they, that's how far spread they were from the British Isles, from these Celtic and pre-Celtic people um, living as far away as, you know, Wales and Ireland, all the way down to, to India and Iran, um, that that group of people sort of took over the entire culture and became the dominant force all across that area. And so Dius Pater became Upater, Jupiter. For the Romans, Dius became Zeus of the Greeks. Dai became Tai of the Nordic religions. Um, everywhere you look, all across the Middle East, Europe, parts of Asia, you see very different classical religions that developed from those cultures, and every single one of them came from the Sky Father of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. So suddenly, I'm forced, I'm forced to acknowledge that the God that I worship, the God that I was brought up to worship, is no, none other than this same idea that you see repeated all across the Western world. And it doesn't matter the time, the language, the differences, that they all kind of pull back to this idea of this one high God. So I have got I have got to find out what this means. And so today, that's brought me kind of full circle um, to psychology. And I'm not I'm no longer looking for the origin of God in the oldest religions um, for a lot for lots of reasons. I mean, history only goes back so far. And once you go back beyond the kind of the classic religions of the ancient world, um, we're stuck with things like like cave paintings, like the cave paintings that you see in uh, France and Spain that date back, you know, fifteen to 30,000 years. Um, some very interesting stuff there, and we can talk more about that, but, you know, how do you make sense of that? There's not a lot of substance there. Um, you know, and temples that survive, like Stonehenge and Gobekli Tepe, and, you know, uh, in, on the island of Malta, there's very ancient, ancient stone buildings. Um, and there's all kinds of things that you can say about that. I mean, you can say that the buildings had astronomical alignments so that maybe the people worshipped the stars or, you know, but you're just guessing. We have no idea. that We're, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're in prehistory. We have no idea. So that's kind of the, the, the obstacle that I came up against is I'm not, I'm not able to go back to the beginning. Um, you know, history just sort of turns black. I can't go all the way there. But what I can do is think about what's common among all of these things. Uh, all of these religious traditions came from the mind of human beings. 
and human beings are, in general, alike. And so I wanted to, I wanted to look at maybe understanding psychology, understanding human nature as a way of kind of getting to the root of the truth of these religious ideas. And that's when I encountered um, uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson and Carl Jung. And we talked about Peterson and Jung already. I'm sure we will uh, quite a bit going forward. Um, I'm in the middle of reading uh, Carl Jung's um, student's book, um, a guy named Eric Neumann, uh, and it's it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm highlighting the things in the book that are important, which I, I like to do because it's easier for me to read read what I've highlighted if I have to reread something than to kind of go back and reread the whole thing. And what I'm finding with uh, Neumann is everything is highlighted. There's there's almost nothing that I'm skipping. It's all critical. So I'm very excited to bring more of that stuff to to you guys here soon. Um, but what I'm getting at here is. Um, that I sort of came full circle to uh, land on this idea of archetypes. Um, when, and I do want to talk more about that in, in the future. Um, the idea that there is, um, that there is a, what Jung would call a transpersonal force, that there's something that we kind of all human beings have access to, that we can tap into, and that sort of forms the foundation of um, you know, our, our psyche. And that it's not unique to any one person, but it's a collective thing. It's something that um, it's something that uh, causes us to develop the way we do. You kind of think think about that like DNA, you know, like our coded DNA. Um, that's what causes us to evolve biologically the way that we do. You know, from a you know from a um, from a zygote all the way up to a to a fully fully grown person. That that and it, you know it doesn't stop at birth. It continues on. The cha- the transformation of our biology continues as we mature, all the way through to our death. That that sort of spelled out in the DNA. And Jung is going to say a very similar thing about the archetypes. That they exist. They're like our psychic DNA. And that our development, that our maturity, that our psychological development kind of emerges from that based on the laws um, of, of the structure, I should say, of the archetypes in the same way that our biology emerges from the structure of our DNA. Um, and so that transpersonal force uh, that um, seems to me to be the thing I've been searching for, the origins of it all. So I want to talk more about that um, in the future. Uh, so I hope you found this interesting. Um, really, this is just a, a way for me to introduce the idea to let you know kind of why it's so interesting to me, um, and where I want to go with this. So I will bring you guys more of this, uh, in the future. Uh, this is just a little bit of a taster. Uh, let me know what you think until we meet again.